Good Wednesday afternoon, guys. I'm Jerry Miller, and this is the I Love Seville Show. Thank you kindly for joining us. A show where we talk anything and everything. We stay true to what we believe is right. And we stay true to what we believe is right. Um, even if that goes against popular opinion. Because if you're going to do a program like this where you're on air, I mean, heck, what would you say? Have I finished a show in under an hour and months, Judah? Probably not. There have been a few. You're talking five, I mean, across all the shows, maybe 15, 20 hours a week where you're giving your opinion, you're going to hear opinions from viewers and listeners. You're going to get feedback from viewers and listeners. And that feedback um, from viewers and listeners is, is raw. It's real. It's authentic. In today's era um, of ubiquitous smartphones, people absolutely addicted to social media, and yes, it is an addiction. We, know, we all know it. People give commentary that they will, with their thumbs, typing into a screen that they never, ever, ever would in real life in a face-to-face -face setting. People have keyboard muscles when sitting on their couch. Those same muscles, that same courage, that same fortitude to type something online would never, ever be present in a real-life setting when you're eyeball-to-eyeball -to, -eyeball to someone. I've experienced that firsthand, arguably at a scale um, that few have because of the visibility of this platform and the nature of giving your opinion on a regular basis, which we do. We give opinions on topics that are close to our heart. We talk affordability in Charlottesville and Almarle in Central Virginia. We talk crime in Charlottesville and in Almarle in Central Virginia. We talk curriculum at the school level in Charlottesville in Almarle in Central Virginia. Politics, business, who's closing, who's opening, who's running their companies the right way. Which candidates are the right people to back for office? A topic we cover often. Often, I don't know about you, but I was raised where you don't talk about politics, religion, and money. My mom and dad, boomers, they're 73. My mom's about to turn 73. My dad is 73. They almost indoctrinated into my brother and I that you don't talk politics, religion, and money. And you know, my parents, they gave us a fantastic foundation for life. I was actually having this conversation with my wife. My dad um, and my mom were small business owners. My dad is a CPA, certified public accountant. He went to the University of Virginia, graduated in 1972. My mom is a Cuban immigrant. I tell the story often. Mima and Poppy, which are my grandparents, they... Um, were born in Cuba, my mom born in Cuba. 
Mima and Papi, um, middle class, upper middle class life in Cuba. My mom had resources that came with an upper middle class life. Mima and Papi involved with politics to a certain extent at the local level in Cuba and were seen as Mima in particular, my grandmother, um, as leaders within their community. Mima, I was told, had the gift of uh, communication, the gift of conveying complicated matter in simplistic ways. She had charm, and people liked being around her. When Fidel Castro um, started taking over Cuba, eventually turning it into the communist Cuba that we know today, he used tactics that are undoubtedly synonymous with a dictator, a tyrant, violence, um, murders in public squares where other people would see leaders beheaded to make um, a statement that this is now my country to run. And Mima and Poppy and my mom, who was nine at the time and in third grade, legitimately they feared for their lives. They feared that they would be the next to be used as a scapegoat or example by Castro and his guerrilla warfare. So there was a night that Mima and Poppy, my mom remembers this like it's yesterday, they woke my mother up. She said it was after midnight, and they told my mom, you need to put everything that you love or everything that's important to you in this backpack, and we have about 30 minutes to leave our home. They didn't want to give my third-grade nine-year-old mother um, a heads-up about this in advance because, like most parents, they didn't want her to worry. They didn't want her to have this, like, heavy... Um, matter on her shoulders. So their idea was, let's give her 30-minute notice to get all her valuables in a backpack so we can then get on a boat and go to Miami. Um, They did that. They left their home that they owned. They left jobs that afforded an upper-middle-class life. I'm not going to say they were wealthy, but my mom, and I had conversations with Poppy and Mimi about this before they died, they were able to do just about anything they want in Cuba. They sacrifice this um, they sacrifice this effort and this equity and this and these decades long of climbing the professional ladder to build a better life for their only daughter, my mom, for the sole focus of pursuing freedom in the United States and for the prevention of potentially them getting murdered by Castro and his guerrillas. So after midnight, my mom gets the backpack with what she thought was her most valuable possessions. Still to this day, she mentions photos that she left that she wished she had taken, a diary that she wrote that she forgot to put in her backpack. Um, And they got on a boat with a couple other dozen Cubans that were concerned about getting murdered, scapegoated, in visible fashion. And Mima and Poppy and my mom went to Miami for freedom, for 
to stay alive. Mima didn't speak English. She took the first job available because they didn't have a ton of money that they were able to bring with them. If it wasn't for family and friends that were already in Miami, um, they said the transition would have been almost next to impossible. They crashed on the uh, sofa and um, on uh, some sleeping bags and pillows in a living room for a number of months before they were able to save the bankroll to rent a one-bedroom apartment in Miami, essentially an efficiency, where Mima, Poppy, and my mom lived. The first job Mima was able to get, she was the first one to get employed. She realized that she had to make money for the family immediately because the money was drying out quickly. Mima took a job as a hotel maid. Poppy was this strong and like proud Cuban, a guy with muscles and, and, and I'm sure some ego. He held out and maybe he held out because the opportunities he had professionally in Miami, he thought were at the time below him. Eventually, months go by and you don't have a job. And Poppy did what you got to do when you're trying to feed a family. He sucked up his pride and he took a job as a ditch digger working for Miami, the municipality, the local government. So you got two adults uh, in their upper 30s, early 40s who went from an upper-middle-class life in a country they loved, Cuba. They left a home that they owned and had paid significant mortgage payments on equity in this house to come to Miami, where for four to five months, they were living on a living room floor of extended family. And then soon thereafter, they were able to afford an efficiency one-bedroom in Miami where they made it work. My mom slept on a cot. Mima and Poppy got the, uh, the bedroom. My mom was put in uh, the third grade um, in Miami in an English-speaking school without being able to speak English. She remembers to this day of how she was ridiculed mercilessly by the... Um, students that were English that would come up to her and say nasty things that she could not understand because she had yet to learn the language, but still she knew as a third grader that they were making fun of her because they were pointing at her, they were laughing at her, they were doing this in group setting and they were aggressive with it. She tells a story of every day in third grade coming home in tears coming home in tears to Mima and Poppy. And what she did not realize at the time was Mima was also coming home in tears from her job as a hotel maid because Mima was working at a Miami hotel with English-speaking bosses, unable to speak the language, was yelled at and was ridiculed, but had no choice but to keep her head down to do the work, because at the time, Poppy was too prideful to get the job as the ditch digger. So she was the sole source of income for the family. 
my mom said that she did not realize till high school that Mima was also crying her sleep, crying herself to sleep at night. So Poppy has, what, how tall are you in third grade? Like four foot, you know, as a nine-year-old, a 10-year-old on the floor, excuse me, in a cot next to his bed sobbing and has his wife in the bathroom sobbing. You have enough nights like that, and then your ego gets eroded. And you start taking a shovel, pitchfork, and you start digging ditches in a 100-degree heat. The story has a happy ending. And it's, it's a happy ending rooted in the American dream. Mima and Poppy eventually started learning Spanglish. They never really got fully bilingual. But it was enough for them to get around, especially in a Cuban-centric Miami, and then eventually a Cuban-centric Naples, Florida. My mom, because she was so young, you know how those young brains work? She was able to pick up the language very quickly. And she said by the middle of the fourth grade, those insults that she was hearing, she was able to understand. And then the responses coming from her while accented with the Spanish accent were coming back in English. And then the bullies started backing down. And then Miba and Poppy, the ditch digger, the hotel maid, Poppy eventually went from ditch digger, which can you imagine digging ditches in Miami in what? 105, 106 degrees with humidity on asphalt, next to asphalt, with cars going by you? He eventually was able to parlay, or eventually was able to learn the craft of, of, of being a barber. And he's like, look, I can be a barber here in the air condition. Um, I'm still on my feet all the time, and it's, it's difficult, but I'm not digging ditches with cars going 60 miles an hour by me standing on asphalt. Mima stayed as the hotel maid for the rest of her time professionally in, in, in Naples and Miami. My mom was able to climb the elementary school ladder, picked up English halfway through fourth grade. That got better, that got better. And next thing you know, she is uh, graduating high school. And she goes to community college. And I want to put hardship in perspective for you. Community college for my mom and for Mima and Poppy was like maybe someone in Charlottesville going to like Harvard University or Princeton, or Yale. No one really saw when they arrived to Miami a path to higher education. But Mima and Poppy realized that was the way for their daughter, their only 
child to better her life. And Meeba and Poppy saved everything they could. They were the most frugal, efficient. The most frugal and efficient people you will ever meet. They were able to, with the help of my mom working in community college, afford the tuition. She couldn't live in the dorms. She couldn't get an apartment. She had to live at home. There was no going out at night partying with her friends, 18, 19, 20, like we would want to do. It was, you get dropped off by Poppy, who drove an El Camino. <laughs> a beat-up El Camino. He drove my brother and I around in that Camino, El Camino. And he would drop her off, and then he would pick her up. And when he picked her up, he took her to her part-time jobs. And that's how they paid for community college. That two-year degree paid dividends for my mom. She took the two-year degree, I believe that's called an associate's degree, uh, which was business, majored in business administration. That's what Mima and Poppy pretty much told her she could do because they knew business administration would apply to life. And they um, watched as my mom took that two-year degree and got a job as a, at a bank in Naples, Florida. And my mom started as the teller, like you started at the teller, where you're taking people's money at the window or working the drive-thru. When you come from a life where you forget to pack your diary or your most prized photos of your best friends in a backpack because you only have 30 minutes to, to get everything. It's after midnight and you're half asleep and you're nine years old. Of course, you're going to forget something. When you come from a life where you sleep on a cot for years next to a bed, when you come from a life when you watch your father come in from a 10-hour ditch-digging shift and is physically exhausted to the point where he collapses on the couch or the sofa, or you watch your mom go from being a leader in the community to being so demoralized that she's sobbing in the bathroom, you... you take things more serious than other 20-year-olds. Some are going to the, what is it, discoteca, or like the nightclub, closing down the bars. She's like, dude, I have to take the money from this job where I'm a teller and help my parents cover the mortgage that they have or put food on the table. We've had arroz and frijoles for three straight weeks for dinner. I'd like to have something else for dinner than rice and beans. So she worked this teller job, and she, she 
busted her tail. And she took every shift possible, overtime, everything. So she could help her parents with the bills. She lived with them. And at this time, my mom's working a teller job at a bank. Poppy's a barber. My mom's still a hotel maid. And, and they were able to buy a tiny house, like 800, 900,000 square feet in Naples, Florida. And that's a house that my brother and I grew up in. And I'll get to that in a matter of moments. Mima and Poppy were so proud of my mom and the work that she was doing at this bank um, that they told everyone about it, family, friends. And mom was so impressed, was so strong with her work that she impressed the manager of the bank and soon got a promotion. And the promotion was manager of the tellers. And that's key, being the manager of the tellers. As the manager of the tellers, she then had the responsibility of working alongside a young, sharp CPA from Arthur Anderson, a University of Virginia graduate whose job at Arthur Anderson, the CPA firm, was to go up and down the East Coast and work alongside banks, either from an auditing standpoint or from a financial optimization standpoint. And as this young, sharp CPA from Hampton, Virginia, Hampton Crabber, goes from the University of Virginia, takes a job at Arthur Anderson, at one time one of the most prestigious firms out there, he takes his old beat-up Oldsmobile, where he's living in Nova, drives it down the eastern seaboard to Naples. He gets out of the car, he's got a comb over, he's got a jacket on with these big ties and these big lapels, walks into the bank and says, I'm the CPA from Arthur Anderson, I'm here to look at your financials, talks to the bank manager, the branch manager. The branch manager says, all right, Maria Gomez is your point of contact. Maria Gomez, my mom, the CPA, my dad. Something happened there. They either knew right away, it was either love at first sight, but dad and mom both said, right away we knew we were supposed to be together. So they're working alongside each other for the first week, and they're trying to do this. Dad's doing his job, mom's helping as the, the teller manager, dad do his job. But the connection is palpable and it's tangible. And dad finally has the courage to ask mom out. And when dad asks mom out, what he does not realize is the Cuban culture. <laughs> so crazy. You get chaperoned. So on that first date, where he's in this beat-up Oldsmobile, wearing this jacket with these big lapels and this huge tie. I've seen the pictures. It was the style then, but gross, gross. He goes and picks up Mima at this tiny house, less than 1,000 square feet. And he says, I'm here to take out your daughter, Esteban Gomez. Esteban Gomez was Poppy. He opened the door. And Poppy, like every Cuban father, or like probably the father of most daughters, especially single 
only children was taking out my daughter, what are your plans? He basically did the quintessential, if you F this up, I'll kill you, right? Had the, uh, showed up in uh, the white tank top, you know, the undershirt. It's got a nickname, the, the wife beaters, the, the white undershirt, the tank tops. At the door, it's tucked into his pants. He's got a, a belt on that's super tight. Poppy was a ditch digger and physical. He had these strong arms. He intimidated my father. And he said, you know what? You are going to go on this date with this chaperone here. And my dad, my mom, and a second cousin was a female, went out on a date. Evidently, the date was a smash success. Dad eventually finished um, his time with the bank, and Arthur Anderson set him on the road elsewhere. Before he went on the road elsewhere, this was a three-week window where they met at this bank in Naples, Dad asked the chaperone if I could give... Maria, my mom, a kiss. And the chaperone did not say yes or no, but the chaperone got up from the table for an extended, what she said, bathroom break. 20 minutes later, he realized what was happening and they walked around the block and he gave her a kiss. That one kiss from the one first date was the foundation for a romance. And within three weeks of my dad meeting my mom, he proposed to her. You have a CPA, UVA educated, one of the most conservative people you know, like most certified public accountants are, taking a leap that anyone in our world would call as aggressive and risky, proposing to a Cuban woman, no money to speak of, living at home with their parents, who went weeks out of time of eating rice and beans because that's all they could afford. I thank the Lord often that that happened because it yielded my brother and I, right? So Mima and Poppy, they're in Naples, Florida. My dad realizes very quickly that he's going to have any shot with my mom in marriage, that he's going to have to move from Arthur Anderson and to come down to South Florida because my mom and her family were as tight as tight could be, as thick as thieves, always getting together. They always said this, we were poor in money but rich in love. He moves to South Florida, and he takes a loan from his father, Jules Miller. That loan for his father was like, I don't know, 15, 20,000. Don't hold me to the exact number, but it was a nominal amount. And that loan was the investment mechanism to purchase a CPA firm, and it wasn't even a CPA firm at the time. It was a bookkeeping practice, a bookkeeping practice, not a CPA firm. And my dad is entrepreneurial and has a vision. He takes this loan from his father, Jules. His father charged him three points above market interest. (laughs) Quintessential Miller, 
three points above market interest for that loan. It was not a gift, it was a loan. And it was a loan where Jules was gonna make money on his son. And he buys this bookkeeping practice in Naples, Florida. And my dad has the vision of taking the bookkeeping practice, he's essentially buying a book of business, meaning clients, and he wants to convert it from a bookkeeping practice to a accounting, a CPA firm, where you can go from charging 10, 15 bucks an hour to the rate that a certified public accountant with an Arthur Anderson resume and a UVA resume could charge, which was 10, 15 X higher than what a bookkeeping practice could do. He took my mom and he said, you are charismatic, you are outgoing, people love you. My dad realized he didn't have a lot of those qualities. And he put my mom in the front of the house to greet the clients. And he stayed in the back in the office doing the work and doing the grinding. He would say often that people, his clients, would come to see him, but they would always come back to see my mom. They build this bookkeeping practice into an accounting firm that becomes pretty significant. Now, one of the collateral damages or the drawbacks of an accounting firm is, especially a startup accounting firm, is the hours are grueling, especially during tax season, especially during extension time. There's legitimately, my brother and I, what most of our adolescence, middle school and high school years, without really seeing our father, except for Friday night pizza night, and occasionally at Saturday morning for soccer games where he would show up to watch us. Outside of that, he was working 80, 90 hours a week, literally, and so fatigued when he would come in, he would just collapse on the bed. Mima and Poppy realized that my mom and dad were trying to build a better future for themselves and for my brother and I. So Mima and Poppy said, you know what? We are going to raise your brother and I. We're going to raise you, Jerry, and your brother. They still didn't have any money, Mima and Poppy. They raised my brother and I until we were in the fourth or fifth grade. Literally, what we would eat for dinner was rice and beans, cinnamon toast. Like, cinnamon toast was dinner. Like, buttered toast with cinnamon. Um, Poppy was proud of his garden in the back where he had mango trees. We're talking like a postage stamp size lot. Like, less than 0.1 but in acres but he was able to grow some mango trees in the back so dessert for us was the mango tree the mangoes from the tree sprinkled with sugar my brother and I grow up in this lifestyle until we're 10 or 11 and we don't think that this is weird or not the norm this is all we know poor and money rich in love um Then dad and mom build the business to a point where another CPA firm wanted to purchase them. And obviously they made an offer that my dad could not refuse. And two other CPAs from another firm bought my dad's book of business. He sold that firm. He transitioned um, from you know, being the shot caller and the visionary of this firm to taking this payday. He had to work two, I think it was either 
18 months or 24 months to transition the business. So the new CPAs that came in, they said, look, we're buying this from Mr. Miller, but he's going to be here for the next 18 or 24 months to help with the transition. So from there, we decided to move, or mom and dad decided to move us to Virginia. Dad's family was from Virginia. They saw a little bit more opportunity in Virginia. Mima had a stroke at that time. She was kind of like a, a fraction or a shadow of her former self. Poppy was still strong as an ox, but broken in spirit because his lobster, his life partner, Mima, was this vegetable, essentially. So he knows that my parents now have a little bit of money. They come up to Williamsburg, and they're like, I guess I got to go because they have the resources to take care of my wife. Poppy comes up here and has to do it all over again. Comes to Williamsburg, can't speak any English. There's a hell of a lot less Cubans in Williamsburg, Virginia than there is in Naples and Miami. Leaves his family, but he does it because he loves his wife and he knows mom and dad, this is how we're gonna be able to take care of him. Eventually, dad decides to do another CPA firm. Similar concept, buys an existing firm and sees an opportunity to amplify it, buying something distressed and making it better. This particular firm was in Newport News, Virginia. He would commute from Williamsburg to Newport News, but he wanted us to stay in Williamsburg because the quality of life was better than bad news. You've heard that nickname for Newport News, bad news. So he'd work, he'd get to work at 6 a.m., dad, 6.30, 7 a.m., work till 11 p.m. at night, midnight, drive back and commute to 20, 30 minutes one way, sleep for three or four hours, and then go and do it again. And he did it for the sole reason of my brother and I having a better life. And we did. My parents were able to afford private school for us. My parents were able to pay for my brother and I to go to college. I eventually at UVA did so poorly because I went from a private school setting, a graduating class of 52 people, where the teachers literally grinded you into performing. And I was bright, but I lacked focus. And my parents raised me in such a stringent environment. When I got to the University of Virginia and had a taste of freedom, I went crazy. I've told the story about fake IDs, of chasing girls, of not going to classes. And eventually, in the middle of the second year, Dad said, you're cut off. If you want to stay here, go pay for the rest of school yourself. Ruby Tuesdays in Barracks Road came a calling. That's where I worked. I also did some hustling of pool, poker, taking bets, and a lot of other illegal activity that I should probably not talk about that was entrepreneurial in spirit, and I'll leave it at that. I watched my mom and dad sacrifice my dad in particular their health for my brother and I to have a better life than they had. My dad is 73 years old now. His mind is sharp as a tack. His body is that of a hundred year old. He can dissect stocks, where to invest, where the market's going, politics. He can talk to you about investing. He can talk to you about real estate. He can talk to you about any nuanced element in the field of business. But if you have him walk down the stairs, he can't do it. He has to take two naps a day for two hours. His feet are constantly swollen from the diabetes. He had a quadruple bypass. 
Parkinson's, his hand shakes where he can't write his signature anymore, and you're literally concerned about what's going to happen with him from from a living standpoint, staying alive. My mom, she was the front of the house, so she didn't work the grueling hours. She worked the hours where the clients came, and they put the clients in short windows so mom could drive us around places. My brother and I, school, soccer practice, sports. She's got the health and, and, and zest for life and physicality of a 53-year-old. So now we're having this conversation. 73-year-old dad with the body of a 100-year-old, quadruple bypass, diabetes, early onset Parkinson's, naps twice a day, has a hard time walking, needs a knee replacement, and mom, who clearly has got a lot of runway on paper left. So my brother and I are having that conversation, and that's a heavy conversation to have, but it's one you have to have as adults. My brother and I are at this point of where we're at professionally because of the sacrifices my mom and dad made. And I'll never forget that. Mima and Poppy, when they died, this is what Mima and Poppy, when they died with. They died with a home that they were able to sell my dad at about $63,000 and $10,000 in the bank. And Poppy and me, my earmarked $5,000 for my brother and I for college, 5K each. To this day, I have significant regrets with how piss poor I handled my time at UVA. I did not go about the University of Virginia like my mom did community college. And I should have, especially knowing before I went to the University of Virginia that $5,000 went to my brother and I for school and that was part of my grandparents' wishes for us. So here's where I'm going with this. As you will mature, and it's not just me, it's all of us. As we mature and we go from being single to finding a partner, someone we love, to having kids, your perspective and outlook on life changes. Your life and outlook becomes what's best for your children. How can we leave our kids in a better spot than we are? So many, I think most parents want that, right? How can we leave our kids in a better spot than where we are, than what we had? So that's what my wife and I's goal is with our two boys. That's what my brother and his wife's goal are with his son and his daughter. I work my tail off in this business, as many of you know, as Judah knows. There's three companies we run, this podcasting network, an advertising and branding business that does brand management for a number of clients and a real estate investment uh, portfolio 
um, that specializes in executive office space and some condo ownership. I utilize the branding business to fund the podcasting network. The podcasting network and the branding business help cover the cost of the real estate business when t- times were tight with the real estate business. I get most, I'm most known for this podcasting network, the I Love Seville network. The reality is the I Love Seville network and this podcasting network, while it's cash flow positive, six figures positive, it's not a top four revenue stream for us. People always say to me, so you want to be a social influencer. What's it like to be a social influencer? I want to be a social influencer. I want to do what you're doing, Jerry. I literally get that question I don't know. 10, 15 times a week. I went to Wegmans yesterday to buy baby formula and got that question. I got stopped um, by someone that's advising a candidate who's currently running for office next to the, uh, the milk aisle. I had a 10-minute conversation. And look, pros and cons of being a social media influencer, I can give them to you. There's one person, one team, I should say, one team, Judah, in a market of 300,000 people that is doing this professionally for a living full-time. Me and Judah. My wife, very instrumental with the business, on the payroll. Those are the only three, the only team. Other folks want to be a social media, they do the videos, they, they want to be an influencer, they're on TikTok, they're on Snapchat, they're on Instagram. They're trying to do it. There's one team, three people financially supported. Actually, we got kids, so call it five. Judah's got a dog, five and a half, that are doing this professionally. And here are the pros and cons of it. Pros, a lot of days I get to come to this talk show and talk about stuff that I'm passionate about. And my hope is as I talk about stuff that I'm passionate about, you, the viewer and listener, find it engaging as well. I chat business and real estate and politics and schools. I was having this conversation with John Blair. I talk these, topic, these topics because these are the topics I'm passionate about. And when you talk about stuff you're passionate about, it's easy to do this. It's fun. It's like you never work a day in your life. Pros of being a social media influencer. Sit in a chair like this behind a microphone and you talk and you get paid for it. You go to Wegmans like I did yesterday and six different people stop you. Legitimately yesterday, a kid went up to me and said, my mom watches you every day. Can I have your autograph? Literally, that happened yesterday. There's a little bit of notoriety that comes with it. You get meals comped around town. People buy you drinks. You get insight on deal flow before other folks that perhaps that you can use for your personal advantage or for your client's advantage, the deal flow and the insight that you get. But there's cons. There's many cons to being an influencer. And those cons are undoubtedly associated with the nastiness that comes with the internet. 
I experienced um, some of this nastiness from Mary Catherine King, a local realtor in Charlottesville in Central Virginia. She works for Long and Foster. I don't know who this person is. I've never had an in-person conversation with Mary Catherine King. Not a single one. If we were at Wegmans or the downtown mall and she walked by me, I wouldn't even know that she walked by me. Would not even know who she was. But a couple of days ago, and this is the third time that she's done this, she's chosen to attack me online by, and I'll read it verbatim, I've got all the screenshots. And this is a local realtor whose job is associated with professionalism. She called me an absolute douchebag. Then her husband, Don King, jumps in the mix as well. This is like the second or third time this agent has gone after me. And when thinking about doing the show, I consulted with Judah and other folks that I trust. And I said, look, I can be vindictive about this. I can utilize the influence we have in a negative light, weaponize the influence I have as retribution. But after thinking about it and consulting with my wife, chatting with Judah and other folks I trust, I'm going to do the opposite. And I'm going to take the high road. And I'm going to say, Mary Catherine King, the three or four times you've attacked me online, maybe you just had a bad day. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. If you'd like to grab a cup of coffee to talk about it, come on the show to hash it out. Write me an email to let me know what your feelings were at the time. That's cool. I'll take the high road. So when you think about being a social media influencer or pursuing this path, first realize there's one person doing it, three people doing it in a 300,000 person market and they're all tied to I Love Seville. One in 300,000, your odds are 0.0000000 Here, am I on a one shot? Can they see this? If you use Central Virginia as a baseline for whether you can be a professional social media influencer, here are your odds. 
one divided by 300,000. Zero point zero 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 three three three. I would very much encourage you not to pursue a professional path where your odds are stacked this against you. That's the first piece of advice I offer. The second piece of advice I offer, if you're going to be a social media influencer, you better have the thickest of the thickest skin possible. Because folks like Mary Catherine King will utilize keyboard muscles to pass along the nastiest of the nasty on a phone, on Facebook and Instagram, that they would never, ever do in person. Ever do in person. Certainly not to your face. And that's on the regular That happens often to us. I joked the other day about meme accounts being created. And it's interesting because that content in my personality makeup, I embrace and it fuels my fire. But that's not to say Judah has the same personality makeup or my wife has the same personality makeup. And they're associated with what I do on this microphone in front of this camera. There is collateral damage to giving your opinion every day on topic matter that there's no right or wrong answer with. He hears it. My wife hears it. There's not a doubt in my mind as they get older, my boys will hear it. You can come on the show anytime you want, Mary, Catherine King. The nastiness on three occasions you've done in my direction is certainly on the cusp of ethics charge. Not anything I'm going to pursue. Don't know if you know this, but I'm in the real estate game myself. If I was a licensed agent, that would be a very different story for what you're doing. I also encourage all the brokers that are watching the program, and I see one, two, three, four, five brokers and or people working in compliance to immediately put a standards of conduct in place for your realtors when it comes to what they can and cannot say on social media. You're going to get some friction because folks are saying, hey, we have the freedom to say what we want. And yes, you do. But you are undoubtedly linked to the firm that you represent and the broker that is your supervisor. In particular, in a market like this, where inventory is at levels that we have not seen in eight or nine years. Inventory levels are going to get much more paltry and slim. And as those inventory levels get 
less and less, folks will get very vulturistic, very aggressive with pursuing competition and using things against their competition. So my suggestion to the brokers that are watching, get a standards of conduct plot. Get a standards of conduct one-sheeter in front of your agents immediately. Because if I wanted to be vindictive and truly nasty, I could have taken this to levels But my sounding board and my better half and my trusted advisors said otherwise. Give her a shot, give her a chance, give her a second chance, give her a third chance, and then come on air and give her a fourth shot. So that's where we're at. So on, in a lot of ways, that's that's a glimpse into me. That's a glimpse into my family and my upbringing. That's a glimpse into one of my biggest regrets, not taking college seriously. That's a glimpse into the, the pressures you face doing this, the vitriol you could face. And if there's something that you take from this show... Maybe take this, and I'll rattle them off in bullet points. The American dream is not just wealth and home ownership and white picket fences. The American dream for a lot of people is freedom and not getting murdered by dictators taking over their countries and stealing their possessions. So while we complain about not maybe being able to live the financial life we've wanted, we're not worried about walking down Market Street and turning onto the downtown mall and having Castro's gorilla cutting people's heads off to make, people's, to make examples of people. So in the case of my mom and my Mima and Poppy, the American dream was staying alive. It was freedom. That's perspective. Second thing that maybe you take from this. Those of us who are willing to sacrifice to the extent of sleeping on a cot or eating arroz y frijoles for weeks on end, buttered cinnamon toast for the other nights when you're not eating rice and beans, having mangoed with sprinkled sugar as your only dessert for the first handful of years of your life, if you're able to make sacrifices of that magnitude, professional and personal success will eventually follow. It will not be overnight, but it will eventually follow. And lastly, when it comes to our children, I truly take people for being good, generally good people. 
I don't think Mary Catherine King is this nasty tyrant that she's showing online. She's a mother. She's a father. She's a, a wife. She has kids that are going to read what she's written. I'll give her the benefit of the doubt of having a tough time or a bad night. Maybe too much wine or something. But these damn phones and social media take the empathy and the human connection and the sympathy and the kindness out of life. And they turn people into avatars and profiles. And we don't realize behind those avatars and those profiles that there is heart and there's pain and there's regret and there's happiness and there's children that read it or hear it or see it or wives and husbands that are in the wake of the collateral damage. So I'll close with this. Live life each day in a way that will make your kids proud of you especially online, because it lives forever on the internet. Utilize social media in a way where your children and your parents, if they read it, they won't frown upon what you write. And we all fall victim to that. If you're emotional in the moment, put your phone down and take a deep breath. And if we can all maybe follow those little things, maybe we got a Charlottesville and a Central Virginia that's just a little bit more kind. That's today's show on a Wednesday. It's the I Love Seville show. For Esteban Gomez... For Romelia Gomez, Maria Gomez, Judah Wickower, my name is Jerry Miller. Thank you for joining us.